I'd love to read to you from the end of Mark 1, from verse 40. And it's the encounter Jesus has with just one man. It says, And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once, and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. I want to open up our theme this evening by just provoking you to think for a moment. If you were asked the question, um, what's the deepest problem in the world? What is it that needs fixing? If this was fixed, then everything else would fall into place. What's the, the root issue that we are confronting? It seems to me that we are always being offered the answer to that in one form or another. Every time you crack open a newspaper, you're, you're being offered um, answers to that question. What's wrong with the world and what needs to happen in order to fix it? And people's often, um, their, their life passions, their life calling, their life vocation is often driven by a deeper sense of what is the most important thing that needs to be dealt with in the world. Um, and a lot of people offer different ideas for this. So some people would, would offer that our greatest threat, our greatest problem right now, is the fact that our, our planet seems to be suffering from um, human impact and the fallout that's happening through climate change and all these kinds of things. And of course, um, all these things concern us. They, they matter. But obviously, the problems of humanity predate issues of climate change by millennia, don't they? So we know that that's not the most pressing issue. It's an important one, and it's, uh, it's important to deal with and to think about or to face up to, but it's not the most important thing. Other people say that the, the deepest issue that we are being confronted with is the issue of inequality, and particularly when it comes to wealth and the fact that there are so many people in the world who are wealthy and some who are poor, and poverty, is, of course, is never a good thing. But we also know that wealth accumulation doesn't fix things either. Because nations, as they grow wealthier, generally do not grow happier. And they do not grow more whole or more healthy in other dimensions. So we know that uh, wealth equality would not fix things in, in any sort of um, fully orbed, um, holistic view of things. Uh, the same could be said of politics. You know that so often the, the needs of the moment are presented as political problems. That if we had the right ideas, the right ideologies, we could fix things. We could fix Brexit. We could fix what's going on in our current climate. Of course, none of this is true because the cycles of history and of power and of interest go, are continuous and replaying all through history. No one's ever been able to fix things that way. It can moderately improve things for a while and it doesn't even last that long. So Perhaps it's a slightly pessimistic and gloomy outlook on things. But, um, and some people will say, look, our greatest problem is sickness and death. And so people make it their life's aim to combat particular diseases, particular sicknesses that threaten us. And they're admirable things to deal with and to face up to. But the reality is, even if we could deal with all the major sicknesses and rule them out, the consequence would just be that we live longer 
but not necessarily that we improve the world as a result. Sometimes living longer is part of the problem, isn't it? And um, some of us, um, you know, maybe maybe our, our presence on Earth doesn't help the situation. So, um, uh, anyway, so so whatever you think about the answer to that question, um, I want to su- I want to suggest. No, I, wa- I want to strongly affirm that. The Bible's view on things, I think, is more helpful. It says that uh, whatever's going on up there, and you can talk about all these issues I've been mentioning, the root of it all, actually, uh, is, is the root called sin. And I don't mean particular sins in your life, though they are important expressions of sin, but I mean the root itself is sin as, um, as a kind of infection in the body, as it were. And that's the lens through which I want you to understand that word, because obviously the word sin is not particularly acceptable in our day and age. It's generally associated with a kind of judgy mentality and with an angry presentation of who God is. And so um, you could go to many, many churches, in fact, and never hear anyone talk about sin because it's considered offensive. But to me, that's just a form of cowardice since we're backing away from talking about the real problem. And um, it, it seems to me, though, that we can talk about sin if we look at it in a way that is, accept, is, is kind of understood in our context. And one of the ways you can, you can grasp a hold of this issue is to think of it as a kind of a sickness. Because on the one hand, we know that that is exactly how the Bible portrays sin. It's not to take away moral, moral culpability from the issue, but it does portray it as a kind of a disease in us. And Jesus himself speaks about sin as a kind of a disease. Even in the next chapter of Mark's Gospel, verse 17 he says, that I, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So he equates health and righteousness, and he equates sickness and sin. Please don't mishear me. He's not suggesting that sickness is a result of sin uh, in a direct way. But he's, trying, he's using it as a metaphor, as a picture for what is wrong with us. And I think you can think of it, you think about... Um, Actually, and this makes sense to me when you think about the way our culture talks about our root problems. Um, we, we have, you know, a good number of friends both inside and outside the church. And it's particularly true, um, of course, people inside the church certainly um, seek certain ways of, of dealing with their, their particular problems. But our friends who are, who are outside the church are often, most of them have been in or are going through therapy of one kind or another. Because even, even if you're not a Christian, you can recognize that there's a disordered reality to your life that needs fixing. And so it seems to me that the world we're in recognizes that things are not right. They're not right at that level across society. They're not right at the level of my own heart. And it's also common these days to, to then think of ourselves as in a position of having been messed up by our parents, by society, by something that's happened to us or in the choices we've made. And so I think our world gets it, that, that there's a brokenness to us that needs dealing with. And this is exactly the way Jesus often talked about the problem of the human heart. And you can think about it a little bit like how autoimmune de- diseases work. An autoimmune disease is a disease in which your body malfunctions and begins to attack itself. And there can be many surface-level expressions of that. It can be expressed on your skin. It can be expressed in your nervous system malfunctioning. It can be expressed through achy joints or, uh, um, or joints that no longer work. or um, It can also be expressed in your gut and in your, your digestion. And all of those things can, to some degree, be dealt with or treated or helped. 
But all of them stem back to a fundamental root that there is a disease in your system which potentially cannot be stopped or is, has a kind of a progressive nature to it which will result in all of this discomfort and suffering in life. And the Bible says, okay, that's true at the physical level. Now think about the spiritual and the psychological and the reality of your heart. It says that the, the basic problem with humanity is this thing called sin. And it gives birth to all the other problems that I mentioned earlier. It gives birth to the fact that we as humans are, are willing to wreck, wreck our planet in this generation. Or it gives birth to the fact that we have inequalities and, and greed and all these kinds of things. Okay, But none of those things can be understood unless you go back down to the very root of things and understand it as sin. Now, I say all that because we're, we're being confronted here with the story of a healing of an obscure disease which you and I are very unlikely to ever encounter in our lives. But one of the ways you can get a handle on what's happening here is to understand that each of the miracles in the book of Mark has a, parabolic, a parable nature to it, that it is it portrays something of the reality of what Christ came to do for us. For example, if he heals a blind man, it's used to, to show the way that Jesus can open our eyes to spiritual realities. And when he's healing a leper, what I want to help you to see is that in a, in a real way, this is one of the most perfect um, portrayals of the way Jesus wants to deal with the issue of sin in our lives. We need to begin by understanding the disease itself. This disease, um, which today is known as, as Hansen's disease, if indeed it was Hansen's disease, but that's what's widely thought probably was the case, has three features you've got to understand at the physical level. First of all, it's progressive. That a person who has this disease will progressively get worse for whatever life remains. A second feature of it is that it is self-destructive. And this is really crucial to understanding how leprosy works. Because it has the effect of being like an, an anesthetic to your extremities. So that you lose all sense of feeling in hands and feet and in the nose and ears and eyes. And it's not the case that the disease itself causes any damage to a person directly. But it, the damage happens indirectly because a person harms himself through their lack of feeling. So, for example, you might be doing something as innocent as just getting dinner ready and chopping the vegetables. Just this week, my mum was using one of those things called a mandolin. Have you ever seen those? It's like a blade on a board. And you go like that, and there's a chopping action. And she's always trying to do about three things at the same time. And she sliced off the end of one of her fingers. Um, <clears throat> So I know some of you are more queasy than others, so we're all like, Ugh. okay, so I had to deal with that. I had to, um, you know, go and help her out a little bit, and um, yeah, I didn't want to be there either. So, but um, the, the point is, of course, she immediately knew what had happened, and we had to deal with it, treat it, bandage it. But you can be doing something as innocent as that. If you have leprosy, you won't necessarily know. You might do it one time, and then another time, and so... People suffer harm to their, to their, to their body. They could, be, um, they could be dip their hands into water to wash the face. And it turns out to be scalding water and burn the face. Or 
Um, this is the reality of, of what people face with this disease, and it's a tragic thing because it still exists in our world. Um, people with this disease could, could handle a tool. And, you know, your muscles are generally stronger than you realize, and your nervous system prevents you from using them to their full capacity. But a person without any sense of pain might grip a tool so tightly that their hand becomes permanently damaged and malformed. And eventually, um, parts stop, stop working. And, uh, or they may go to bed at night and um, <clears throat> not know that they're, 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 uh, their parts of their body are being uh, nibbled at by vermin. And so Dr. Paul Brand, who is a Christian who'd worked, who's worked with um, people who suffered leprosy over in India for many years, he wrote extensively about it. And he says, by the way, you know, this is why pain is a gift from God. Um, we, we often struggle with the issue of pain, but you see, without pain, uh, you, you do suffer self-destructive. Um, self-destruction in your life, you start to hurt yourself without necessarily even realizing it. But he, he would treat these victims and he'd send them home with, with a cat as part of his normal routine so that they would have some measure of protection just in going to sleep at night, something as simple as that. So you see, this disease is progressive and it's self-destructive. Another aspect of it is that it is socially isolating. Now this is particularly true, um, it's true today of course, because obviously it leads to, to, to um, gross deformities in appearance and fear as people withdraw from you through fear of contagion. But it was even more acutely true in the time of Jesus because of the laws that existed around leprosy. And there are a couple of chapters in the book of Leviticus that deal with this directly. And there's some verses that say that the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and he cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. The rabbis added to this, they intensified this for the experience of people with leprosy. So they said, even if your head is inside a house, that house uh, must be deemed unclean. And they said, it's illegal to greet a person with leprosy. And they said, if a person with leprosy approaches you, um, they must remain 100 feet away if they're upwind, or 4 feet away if they're downwind. There's obviously this idea of this contagion around the disease. And so all of that led to a person, the way one his, uh, ancient Jewish historian, Josephus, put it, he said that a person would be treated as if they were, in effect, dead men. And you can barely imagine a more miserable existence, can you? Not only suffering, not only harming yourself, but also unable to receive comfort and love from the community in which you live. And it's with that desperation that you must hear this man's plea when he comes and he approaches Jesus. Illegally, it would seem, approaches Jesus with the need of healing. But what I want you to see is that I think that this is an almost perfect representation of, of what sin does to us. You see, let me just go back through those ideas. The first thing you have to understand about sin as the Bible portrays it, and I think this, you'll recognize this is all true, true to your experience, is that sin has a progressive aspect to it. And you think about this in terms of the journey you've been on and your life so far. Um, you know, what we, 
we recognize that as we're children, we, we have a certain measure of innocence to us, don't we? Um, our minds are not twisted by the experiences of life, and we're not, we don't look at things through uh, the same lenses as adults. An example of this this morning, my daughter was wearing um, tights and a t-shirt and then a denim dress on top of that. And she got hot. She'd been running up and down the stairs in here. And she got so hot, she took the dress off and threw it over the stairs and was just running around like happily, totally oblivious to how inappropriate that is. But she's, there's an innocence to her. She's three years old. And of course, th- this is the way we all start. Like we, life is not a dark place when you're a child, if you're growing up in a healthy context at least. But you can all think about your own life and journeys, and you think about the way the patterns of your mind now and the things you see and the things that tempt you and the things that appeal to you. And you know you can trace it back to particular moments in your life when, when maybe a bit like Adam and Eve eating the fruit, your eyes were opened and you acquired knowledge. It might be the first time you lied and you realized how easy it was. And then it gave birth to a pattern of lying in your life or the first time you took something that wasn't yours and how easy then you realize it is to take something and there's no repercussions. It could be the first time you had some kind of illicit sexual experience, something which um, maybe in that moment made you feel in equal parts dirty and also thrilled, but it led to the transgression of boundaries and so that maybe you, you found yourself um, doing more things that you never thought you would do or, or um, just the kind of the breaking down of your innocence, I suppose, in that sense. Not that we're ever truly innocent, but you know what I mean, how there's this progressive nature to the way sin works, and we all recognize that in our own lives because we can see how things we do and think and state of heart that we have traces itself back to particular moments in our lives and decisions we made or things that we were exposed to or temptations we gave way to. And the Bible's very clear about this. One of the great stories of this is the story of David, King David. King David, the great and godly king, but who in his later years made one of the darkest decisions of his life and how this was a, a progressive thing in his own life. There was a progression of sin. You can read the story in a book called Second Samuel in chapter 11. And he's an aging king. And the story begins by describing the fact that it was the springtime and it says when the kings go out to war. And you can imagine, what's a king's responsibility in the ancient world? The king's responsibility is to guard your borders and protect your people from marauding bands of raiders and other bordering nations and things like this. So kings took that seriously. They went to war in order to protect their people. It was life and death. And that was David's job. But it says that at that time, he remained home in his palace and sent his generals off to fight his battles for him. And it seems a fairly harmless decision, but actually it represents a kind of spiritual decline in David's life, that he's abdicating his responsibility in that moment and passing it on to others. So what begins as something that seems relatively harmless then progresses throughout the rest of that chapter. He's at home when when his men are out fighting in a war, and he goes up onto the roof of his palace, and he looks across and he sees a woman bathing, and she's totally naked across um, the flat roofs of Jerusalem. And at that point, he could have stopped and decided in his heart, I must not allow myself to experience, to, to, to follow the road of temptation. But he doesn't. He makes, then makes an inquiry. He asks, who, he asks to find out who she is. He discovers her name, discovers that she's Bathsheba, discovers that she's married to a man, man called Uriah, who's one of his uh, captains in his army. And so having 
seen her, having made inquiries about her, he then invites her to come round. And then when she's in his palace, they end up sleeping together. And then it progresses even further because he discovers that she's pregnant. And in discovering she's pregnant, David must somehow fix his situation. So he invites Uriah, the husband, to come back from the battlefront. And he's hoping that Uriah will, you know, go back home and, and spend the night with his wife. But Uriah is a righteous man, it tells us. And he, he doesn't want to sleep with his wife while his, his colleagues and his comrades are out at war. And so he, he doesn't. He sleeps on the doorstep. And so David, as he's progressing and spiraling down into darker patterns through this this decisions he's made, the cascading effects of the decisions he's made, he ends up doing what would have seemed unimaginable you know, a couple of months before and arranging that Uriah ends up in the most heated part of the battle and then gets abandoned by his, co- his comrades and so ends up being struck down and killed, all as an attempt to cover up his sin. Sin is progressive. Because one decision leads to another. As the boundaries in your life are broken down. There's lots of reasons not to watch Breaking Bad. But it is also one of the most compelling portrayals of, of how sin works. Um, how Walter White, a science teacher, a chemistry teacher, discovers that he has terminal cancer. Just a normal suburban guy with a family and a wife. And then, in his fear of death, he doesn't tell anybody his diagnosis. He knows that he needs to set his family up financially. And so he ends up walking down a path in which he initially just starts dabbling with cooking crystal meth. And he's very good at it. He's a chemistry teacher. He knows how to run an experiment. And selling it with one of his ex-students. And one thing leads to another. Throughout all five seasons of this, uh, of this show, uh, where he ends up doing unimaginable things, unthinkable things, um, killing people, dis- destroying, disposing of bodies, and building essentially a drug empire. And it's amazing to see how someone goes from this kind of state of innocence into the darker and darker swirling pits of the progression of their own sin. And you look at it and you think, well, you know, he's still basically, a, you still want to convince yourself he's a good man, despite all the things he's done. Until this one line in, in, in the show towards the very end of the last season, where he says, he finally admits, he says, I did it for me. I liked it. I was good at it, and I was, I was really, I was alive, he says. And I, I, it's lived with me, that picture. It seems to me very much in a, a mirror image of what happened to David. And the issue for us all is to understand that the way sin works is you think you're in control, but sin always is always making progression. It always progresses in your life unless it is arrested by the power of Jesus. Think about the fact that sin is also self-destructive. Think about how what happens in the life of a leper. A leper loses sensation and so hurts themselves. And really, it's the same thing with sin in your life. You, the first time that you are tempted by something, you might recoil. Like when you touch a hot pan, you recoil. 
because your <coughs> nerves tell you no. And in this case, what I'm speaking about is your conscience. Your conscience, the Bible shows us, is a gift from God and a vehicle through which His Holy Spirit speaks to you and tells you and convicts you when you know the, the, of what's right and also of what's wrong. And so every person has this kind of moral instinct, which, you know, it's hard to explain unless you understand that there is a God in this universe. But of course, that moral instinct can be dulled. The Bible talks about how people can have seared consciences. If you've ever suffered a very, um, if you have any scars or burns, you may have seared skin where the nerves no longer function correctly. And the same can be true with your conscience, that the things that you once recoiled from, you no longer recoil from because you no longer have sensation around them. So it can come to a point where you can do things that at one point horrified you, but now you barely feel even a twinge of guilt about. And such is the effect of how sin is not only progressive, but it's also self-destructive because ultimately it leads to behaviors and patterns of behavior and attitudes and states of heart that hurt you more than they hurt anybody else. It's also socially isolating, just like leprosy. Because just like the leper, and in many ways the leper was held up as a kind of a picture of what sin does. And I think this is particularly true when it comes to um, their experience of isolation from, from God's people. Because the leper... For one thing, they, they withdrew themselves from, from the love of God's people because they felt shame. And they had to project that shame through the shouting of the word unclean, unclean. And they were kind of a living parable of what, what sin does to you. And so it is with us that when we give ourselves to things that we know are wrong, the tragedy of it is that we, we also then carry shame that separates us from other people. And I think it's, it's not uncommon for people who find it hard to return to relationships with, particularly in church, or with people that you admire and godly people, because you are, you are withholding. You, kind of, you, you isolate yourself often. But it's also the case that you can experience rejection from others, because sin, by definition, is, is a relational issue. It's an issue in which you you grow in selfishness and you hurt other people. And so you experience rejection from other people. And sin inevitably has this isolating effect. You hurt people around you. And you experience the breakdown of relationships. And we all know this in our own lives. We know also in the lives of people we love, who we once were close to but no longer are. And you trace it all back and you realize that it was because of this kind of spiritual leprosy that entered at some point. Even the private sins are, are like that. Even the ones that we think no one knows about and that are hidden in our own hearts or in, in secret places have that same effect because they still change you. They still change you. And so when this man comes to Jesus having suffered total isolation for years, we know from Luke's gospel that he had a very advanced leprosy, possibly not been touched by another person for decades, in many ways, I think his state, his plight, is a very vivid picture of what happens to us when our lives are given over to patterns which we know are displeasing to God. And it is, it is a wake-up call. We understand the disease, but I, 
we also must look at how Jesus treats this man. And I want to press you to think about your own life. When you become aware, as many of us are, of the Holy Spirit working in us to bring to light things which we know are displeasing to Him, things which we need to bring into the light, things which we need to repent of, we become conscious of our guilt we become conscious of our shame. We become conscious of how we've hurt other people and how we've ended up isolated from other people. And even a fear, the fear of judgment, the fear of being, of being cast away. And there has to come a point in a person's life if they're to receive the goodness of God. There has to come a point where they fully acknowledge their own responsibility for the things they've done. A failure to see that will mean that you can never enter into the goodness of God and what He wants to offer to you. You have to see it. For David, this came. It came because he'd been living a year, having committed these abominable acts. He'd been living for a year as though nothing had happened. He sort of covered up the whole thing until God exposed it through a man called Nathan. Nathan was a prophet. He was well known and he was friends to David. And Nathan knows by divine revelation that there is something broken in David's life, and he, he challenges him. And when David experiences the challenge and the conviction of sin, there's a kind of a relief, actually, that comes through that, because finally, the deeds done in darkness are brought into the light. And the way that David has so helpfully recorded his experiences are, are there in the 51st Psalm. It's a very precious psalm to many of us who feel that we have done things that we are ashamed of. And we've, I know I've prayed through this psalm many times. And uh, it's a precious psalm because it gives voice to the, the longings of the human heart when you know that your conscience has been, has been pricked and awakened by the Holy Spirit bringing to light the things that you should not have done. And the emotions burst forth. And one of the things that is so evident in this psalm is the longing to feel clean again. It's the same longing that the leper gives voice to. If you will, make me clean. David prays, wash me thoroughly. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He says, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a plant that was used in the temple system for the cleansing, by, it would be dipped in blood and blood sprinkled, atoning blood sprinkled on, on things like the altar to bring cleansing. God's sanctifying power is making, make it holy. And David says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. He says a bit later, create in me a clean heart. He wants to be fixed from the inside. He wants to be rewired actually. Because he doesn't want to have this warped desire and the memory also that, that feels broken inside him. He says, he cries out, create in me. Do the thing that only you can do by your power, O oh God. Create in me. Because I can't change myself. That's what he's saying. A clean heart. Renew innocence, effectively. He says, renew a right spirit within me. And I think it's in that way that you, we, you can picture the lip, leper coming to Jesus when he cries out, if you will, you can make me clean. And this is the prayer that 
Every person prays when they, when they want to come to know Jesus or when they want to deal with issues in their life that need to be brought to Christ. And I, I love to see how Jesus responded to him because, friends, this is the Christ that we come to. Okay? This is him. You may feel afraid. You may feel um, a fear of, of his anger, of his judgment. And, but look how he responds to him. He says, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. You've got to notice a few things about that. You've got to notice how he's moved to help the man. And actually, you know, it could be understood that he had it's this word that he had gut level compassion for him. It's like the stirring deepness out of his gut. There's also reading the commentators say that one of the earliest and most reliable manuscripts, because as you know, the early, uh, the early manuscripts were copied by hand. And sometimes there are tiny variations between one version and another. And one of the earliest manuscripts says that Jesus was actually uh, moved with anger. And it's not the anger against the man. It's not the a- an anger against the leper. What it is is the righteous anger of the Lord Jesus Christ that he wants to deal with sin and its effects in our lives. A kind of indignancy. It's the same feeling that you have when you hear of some atrocity on the news or of something unjust that happens to a friend. Or, and you, and you, there's a burning inside you. I wish I could put this right. And that's how Jesus feels when he sees the mess that we make of our lives. He wants to put it right. And it's such a burning desire. You know, we, the way we often think about the coming of Jesus into the world, we rightly look at it through the lens of love. But we, you shouldn't think of it just purely as a kind of doe-eyed um, love, like the kind of love that you might have for kittens and that kind of love. It's, it's, it's a love of, that takes action that can also be expressed as a fierce and furious anger. Because how else can you, can you explain his willingness to be lacerated and to be... And to be to have a spear plunged into him and to be crucified in the way that he was, there is a, there is a fierce determination in Christ to, to put things right. And that's the emotion that he feels when he sees this leper. He doesn't just look at him as a man who needs healing. He looks at him as a man who is, who is totally broken and destroyed by the effects of sin in this world. And that's how he looks at you. And what he feels for you in, your, in all the mess that you make. Something else you've got to see about Jesus is the fact that he touched him. And this is hugely significant. Because the Old Testament was very clear that you should not and could not touch a leper. The understanding was that while certain things were holy, for example, the temple was holy, the priests were made holy and their garments were holy and there was holy offerings on the altar. These things were sanctified. They could become, much, they could become dirty much, quickly, much more quickly than then dirty things could become holy. It was like dirt was contagious, uncleanness was contagious, but holiness was not. And the way I often think about this, you know, because a lot of people struggle with this idea that, that sin has so affected us that it's permeated every part of us and made us objects of God's anger. Such that we need the mercy of God. Because we look at ourselves and think, well, I'm, I'm at least 50% good. Right? 
But the way the Bible talks about sin and its pervasive effects, it's rather like if you were to go to St. Christopher's Place behind Oxford Street and eat on one of the alfresco tables and uh, sit down at a nice restaurant there out in the open air and order uh, your favorite bowl of soup. And if you were sat there and enjoying the soup, tucking into it, and then as can happen in a city, a pigeon flies over (laughs) and uh, relieves itself right above your bowl of soup. And as pigeon dropping falls into this bowl, do you at that point think, well, this is at least 99% good. I'll just remove the 1% and we'll carry on like nothing's happened. No, no sensible person does that because the reality of the dirt is that it is, it, it's contagious. It's like a, an uncleanness has filled that bowl. And you get rid of the whole thing. You cast out the whole thing. This is how uncleanness was dealt with. And this is why you were not allowed to touch lepers because... The ceremonial uncleanness would spread. But Jesus, Jesus alone, is shown to be the one who in himself carries such a measure of purity and holiness and power that he alone can touch uncleanness. And rather than the uncleanness contaminating him, his cleanness rather contaminates us. Of course, there is a sense in which he becomes contaminated because he carries the sin of the world upon himself when he goes to the cross. But it does not ultimately destroy him. He's the Son of God. And the grace of Jesus is shown here in his touch that he so illegitimately touched this man when he should not have in one sense except that he carried in himself the holiness of the living God. And this is how he touches you. And in four words, we see the entire message of Christianity through what Jesus says. A lot of people misunderstand the way forgiveness and cleansing work in the Christian faith. Even mature Christians act as though there is a process you must go through in order to be made clean. Or that there are a number of steps you must take in order to make atonement for the things you've done wrong. And there are certain kinds of churches that actively encourage this way of thinking. You go to a confessional and in talking to a priest you are are given a, a prescription of a certain way of acting. Certain things you must do in order to make yourself receive, enable yourself to receive forgiveness. Maybe you have to pray certain prayers, pray certain prayers a certain number of times. So you jump these hoops and then you'll experience the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. And even mature Christians act functionally like that's the case because it's like you've groveled and you've groveled and you've groveled and you've begged and you've begged and you still don't feel forgiven. But what the gospel shows us is that the way Jesus deals with us in our sin is that he cleanses us instantly and on the spot when we come to him and ask. So in those four words, I will be clean. Even fewer words in the original. The entirety of the gospel message is summarized. Because it speaks of Jesus' heart and attitude. His willingness to deal with the problem that we cannot deal with. His willingness to step into the world and to bring cleansing and transforming power and to take upon himself our sins so that he could bear the punishment from us. And also the fact that as a result of his accomplishments on the cross, he can merely state over you that you are clean. And you are clean. 
The word we have for this in the Christian faith is justification. To be justified is to have the statement over you that you are not held guilty for the things you've done wrong. And it's a legal statement. It's like saying your record is wiped clean now. We wrongly think sometimes that we have to go through an adequate process of groveling, an adequate process of religious acts, have enough time to prove ourselves in order to feel forgiven. But the truth is, when you turn to Jesus, his statement over you is be clean, and it is accomplished immediately. There's a precious word to the beginning of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the Old Testament prophets. And it's God speaking to his people. He says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet. In other words, it's as though you're carrying a kind of blood guilt on account of the things you've done wrong. He says, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's offering us what only God can do. The perfect, powerful, cleansing work of Jesus in our lives. How much we need that. I kind of wish the story ended there. It actually doesn't. And I want to just take a couple of moments to comment on what happens with this leper. Because in many ways it's a picture of where we can go with the Christian life. Because the leper is given a stern charge by Jesus. It's, you know, if Jesus has just healed you, looks you in the eye and commands you to do something, you think he'd pay attention, right? And uh, he charges him and says, don't, t- don't tell anyone what's happened, but rather go to the temple and offer the, the right sacrifice. Go through the correct legal procedure to make sure that you're ratified as being clean. And he didn't want people... The the news spreading because Jesus was very concerned. As you see often in this gospel, he's very concerned that events don't get out of control and that he isn't made a king ahead of time or that he isn't killed ahead of time. He wants to do what he's come to do in his own time. So it was clear instruction. But the man doesn't pay any attention. You've got to wonder what's going on in his heart because he goes, yep, 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 walks away and then just tells everybody what's just happened to him. You can kind of understand his over-enthusiasm in that moment, but you, you trace it back down, you look at what's going on, you think about, meditate what's going on in the man's heart. And of course, there's something problematic there. It's problematic because one thing, he's, he's celebrating the temporary blessings he has, a whole body, and counting that as more important than the eternal blessing of knowing Christ and having life with Christ. He's continuing on with his own agenda as though God is not in charge of his life. And really, to know Jesus is to come under his lordship and know that he's the boss now. And he's also, you know, he's valuing social acceptance as more important than, than obedience to Jesus and walking closely with Jesus because he wants, to, he wants to be loved. And of course, it's understandable. We all want that. And in a sense, it's a kind of a picture, really, of what happens in the lives of some people who come to Jesus for forgiveness, but then live ungratefully, I suppose, as though, as though you don't then owe him your very life. And of course, what Christ wants of us, in contrast to what this leper does, 
is he wants to cleanse us, but he also wants us to understand that we're cleansed for purpose. To obey him. To walk in step with him. And it's really rooted in the fact that a Christian, you know, a Christian is, is basically somebody who recognizes that Jesus has done the most important thing in the world for them. And everything in your life after that is lived in light of that one great fact. That if he's made you clean, that's the controlling truth about your life. And so nothing is too much trouble then for Christ. We want to live for him. We want to honor him. We want to listen to him. We want to obey him. And how tempting it is that once we've got our blessing, we then run away and get on with our own thing, which is what the man does. It's kind of a sad ending to the story. But at the same time, it doesn't undo the reality of what this man received from Jesus. And the picture stands that in a sense, you and I, all of us, may come to Christ a little bit like spiritual lepers. Aware of the uncleanness inside. Aware of the conscience that speaks to us and of our need to be made whole again. And I want to just ask you this question. Are you aware, do you know, that you need to come to Jesus for healing and for cleansing? And I want to do something a little unusual. We, we read about the way this man approached Jesus. It says that the leper came to him imploring him and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. It's customary in certain church traditions to, for the whole congregation to kneel at certain points in the service. And there's a certainly a merit to that, a benefit to that, I think. But the danger, of course, is that you merely go through physical acts detached from the heart, that it's a routine What I want to do rather is invite you to individually respond to Jesus if you feel that he's been speaking to you. If you feel that he's been just gently, as he so often does, just confronting you with what it is that he's dealing with in your life this evening. And how he stands before you. And he's so approachable. You think about how this leper felt that he could so brazenly approach Jesus even though he wasn't supposed to be that close to him. But Jesus made himself available to to the broken and to the hurt, didn't he? Such is the compassion and the love of Christ. He knew he would listen. And this is how Jesus wants to come to you this evening. And I want to encourage you to to make a humble act. It could be that you, um, you have something very small in your life that you feel you just need to, to bring to God. Just as small as a pigeon poo, right? <laughs> but something you know that's affecting you. Or it could be the case that you have great life-dominating patterns and habits that in a sense are having the kind of effect on you much like this leper is experiencing. Progressive, self-destructive, and socially isolating that you, as a result, feel cut off from God, from his people. And maybe it's the case that you have never come to know Jesus. You've never really given your life to him. And to be a Christian is really to pray the prayer that this leper prays. If you will, you can make me clean. That's how someone becomes a Christian. So as we respond now, I want to invite you. I'm going to give a couple of moments for us to make an individual response to Jesus. But I would like to invite you to find 
your knees, to kneel down, and if you can, and have dealings with him yourself. So why don't we now just get on our knees if we need to, and let's make confession to the Lord. I'm not expecting everyone here to do that. It's not, there's no obligation and there's absolutely no pressure. I just recognize that sometimes things are dealt with in a moment that might otherwise plague you for a long time. And when you come to Jesus and you bring confession to him of what's going on in your life, it's helpful that you understand that Christ has given you many means to deal with things in your life. He's given you He's given you pastors, he's given you friends, older brothers and sisters in Christ who perhaps have more maturity or, or greater strength in certain areas and they can help you. And I do think it can help with certain issues that we're dealing with. It can help if you're willing to go to one of those friends and talk about what's going on in your life because they will, they will, they will certainly be a help. They will offer you wise counsel and advice and pray with you. Even then, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing by far is to come to Jesus directly. When David had done that most heinous thing in not only committing adultery, but then trying to cover it up by arranging for the death of that woman's husband. And when it finally comes to light and he finally brings his confession to God, he says these very surprising words. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And of course, on the surface of it, that's not even true. He sinned against many thousands of people, potentially millions of people, because as the king, he'd sinned against his entire nation. But he's saying that the one line of accountability that matters is my relationship with you, O God, And it eclipses everything else so that ultimately I have to be right with you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And he he prays, God, give me joy again. Give me your Holy Spirit again, he prays. Give me right standing. Give me a new heart. So I want to encourage you as we are just enjoying the sweet presence of Jesus when he so mercifully comes to us and speaks. I want to encourage you, why don't you just, in the quiet, bring your confession and ask for his forgiveness.